good morning. Morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. I hope I hope you've had a great week, an incredible week. It seems as though I don't know about you, but it seems as though our lives are becoming more and more busy as time goes on, does it not? I feel like I feel like I have more to do and less time to get it done than ever. I remember back in the 70s during my childhood, life seemed to be at a more leisurely pace. We sat on the swing in the front yard and we watched cars as they passed by our home. I remember my grandfather used to count the cars in a day and say, because I remember him saying, do you know a thousand cars a day come by here? We had, we had neighbors and we spent hours playing games together. You know, we didn't have smartphones. I remember when I was a young and, and youth, I remember using a party line. I don't know if you guys, any of you guys remember party lines. I'm sure some of you old folks do, old, old dogs like me uh, do. I think they're old. I'm just, you know, I'm saying. As, actually, as you get old, I think once you pass 50, you can start saying, using those words, right? Um, I, yeah, if you had a party line, if you don't know what it is, it's basically your phone is tied to your neighbor. And so when you pick up the phone, if they were on it, you could hear their conversation. Um, yeah, times were certainly different back then. You know, technology has brought a great promise to, to improve our lives. Clearly, we've made, you know, some incredible scientific advancements. I'm thankful for the common grace that God gives us uh, to live during this time in history. We have comforts that our ancestors wouldn't even have dared to dream of. My grandfather, uh, I've said this before, my grandfather was actually born in 1900. Um, that's crazy for me to think about. He, was, he would be, what, 124 right now, 123 uh, years old right now. Um, I'm not even sure his family had a car until he was older, yet you and I drive here this morning, drove here this morning in automobiles that would have amazed my grandfather. The car you drove is probably multiple times safer than the ones your grandparents drove and even, even that your parents drove. Uh, we've, we've seen similar advancements in many areas of life. I've said this before, but when my grandfather was born, the life expectancy was 47 years. And in 2000, it was almost 80. Yet with all these advancements, there is a subtle lie that gets propagated. Clearly, in many ways, our lives are much better with these technological advancements Truly, who wants to return to a world without, you know, seatbelts and airbags or smartphones and Amazon or even modern surgery techniques and anesthetic, right? Nobody wants to return back to those things. Yet there's a lie that, that gets propagated. With all of this technology, we can be like God. That's the lie. We might even, we may even be able to live forever. Have you heard that one? That's, that's going around now. Some believe that one day we may be able to, that we'll be able to download our consciousness into a, di- into a digital medium. And we'll be able to upload our mind to another body and, 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 and live forever. But here's the, here's the kicker, live forever. But here's the idea, live forever without judgment, right? I mean, the Bible says it's appointed for man to die. And then comes judgment. But if we live forever, then we don't have to be judged. Beloved, this has been the same lie from the beginning, has it not? We will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, today we're returning to our study called The King and His Glory. We've made it to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. And in this section, we'll continue in the second part of the sermon that I've titled, The Testing of the King. 
Here we find our Lord being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And as we continue in the text, you'll be shocked to see how our enemy seeks to destroy God's work and his word. You'll be amazed. You see the subtle way that, the, that Satan works, but you'll even be more amazed at how our Lord defeats him. And I would say defeats him handily. So let's read the text. I'm going to pray, and then let's read the text as uh, the Lord Jesus handles this incredible test. Heavenly Father, we pray that you be with us this morning. Pray thanking you for each and every individual here today. For those who are joining us new, Lord, I pray that you would um, use our body to come alongside and, and encourage. Lord, we would be a church that preaches the word. I pray that you would be with us this morning as I do that, and that your uh, Holy Spirit would superintend this process such that, Lord, your word would not return void. We know that's the promise. In Christ's name, amen. Look at your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Text says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread or on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your, stone, your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him on a very high, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. When you... Look at a picture or a video of a man named Al Vernacchio, you would probably not be alarmed by his appearance. Vernacchio is a little overweight, just like many of us. He wears glasses and dresses conservatively in a sweater vest and a long sleeve dress shirt. With that particular description of him, you might be, not be surprised to hear that he is an English teacher at a school called Friends Central School a private school in Wynwood, Pennsylvania. You might even be a little surprised to hear that he is also, you might be a little surprised to hear that he is also involved in the school sexuality curriculum. According to a Fox News article written by uh, a reporter, Hannah Grossman, Vernacchio uh, claims on his website to teach sexuality from nursery age through 12th grade. Again, according to Fox News, he also made this claim on, on more than one occasion, the school corrected this assertion, stating that there is no sexual education curriculum prior to the fourth grade. According to the article, in his work as the sexuality education coordinator 
Vernacchio teaches classes on sexuality. He organizes sexuality-themed programs and assemblies and is a faculty advisor for the Gender and Sexual Orientation Alliance. In a 2011 interview he gave to the New York Times, to, to the New York Times Magazine, Vernacchio described his graphic lesson plans, which he said have raised concerns outside of the school. In that interview, he said his goal is to desensitize children, to desensitize them to images of human anatomy. I'll say it that way. In the words of Vernacchio, I'm responsible for the sexual, sexuality education of all our students, from youngest students to the, uh, who are three years old in nursery school up to th- through our 12th graders who are turning 18 and getting ready to leave high school. That's a huge range, but every single one of those kids is a sexual being. They have been, been so since birth, and at every age and stage, we can offer them age-appropriate, transformative sexuality education. He goes on to explain. It doesn't, it gets better or worse. I'm only a small part of the village that supports them as they grow. It's not enough that I teach them. We have to teach them. Part of my message today is that all we do, that is that all, we all, that is, no matter what else we do in life, need to find a way to be sexuality educators for the kids in our lives. If we don't step up, others will. And many of those others don't see wholeness and freedom the way we do. One of the things that we can celebrate today is how young people have so many options to consider. And simply whether they, simply whether they feel like a boy or, or a girl, or whether they identify as gay, straight, or bisexual, our understandings of both gender and orientation have greatly expanded in our culture. And there's an ever-increasing list of labels one can use to describe oneself. Now, as if it, it didn't get any worse, couldn't get any worse, he adds this whopper. What, is also, what it, it's also brought about is a greater latitude in experimenting with different identities. It's not uncommon today for young people to try out different labels, different pronouns, and different relationships in search of their truth, end quote. End quote. That's what this man believes is the truth. Now, I would argue that this content is evil, and it's absolutely anti-God, but yet I go back to when you look at Vernacchio, he looks like one of us. He doesn't look like an evil man. You were to meet him on the street or in his classroom, you wouldn't be alarmed in any way. In fact, I listened to a couple of his TED Talks on YouTube just to get a better idea of this man. He's very articulate. He even seems... Humble and, and winsome. You might say that he is inclusive. He works to win over his entire audience. And they seem to really love what he is saying. Yet his content is actually evil, hateful, and condescending to those who love the truth. The real truth, that is. Church, I give you this little lesson to demonstrate how our enemy works. Generally, he's not blatantly or outwardly evil. Scripture teaches that, that he even disguises himself as an angel of lights. Let me tell you something else. He takes the truth and he twists it just so. He doesn't want you to recognize the subtle lie. 
Ultimately, that's what he did with Adam and Eve. He challenged God's word by, not by blatantly, blatantly challenging, although I would say uh, that was a blatant challenge, but, but it was just a twist, was it not? You may recall that God told Adam that if he ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Then the, but the serpent, or Satan, twisted that truth by telling Eve that they would not die in the day that they ate it. But that was a twisting of the truth, and he knew it. You see, they wouldn't physically die in the day that they ate it. But something far worse would happen. They would die spiritually. And as a result, as a result they would be eternally separated from God. Church, that's how our enemy works. He's a deceiver. According to the Apostle John, he was, he's the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Now last week we began to look at Matthew 4, 1-11. And the events of this text really come on the heels of, of our Lord's heavenly coronation where He was baptized by John the Baptist and the Father declared Him to be the, the Son of God in whom He's well pleased. And the, the Spirit descended upon Him as a dove, uh, anointing Him for ministry. Well, in Matthew 4.11, Matthew presents Jesus as the tested and proven King. Supplying there's six distinctives of His testing. Now, we saw the first three last week. Uh, the, this, his time of temptation, Jesus' time of t- temptation, transpired in a dis- distinct location, the wilderness. It was tied to or with an old enemy, Satan, and it told of a new Adam, the Lord Jesus. Now, this week we're going to see that it tested a unique title, the Son of God, and it took into account three difficult challenges, and we're going to start looking at those today. And lastly, it told a tale of an amazing triumph. Now, today, we're just going to take a few minutes to review those first three distinctives. Then we'll study the next two. Actually, we'll just get into the, next, the, the second one. Sorry about that. I'm a little slow sometimes. But with that, with that let's quickly look at Matthew's, the first of Matthew's six distinctions. His time of temptation transpired in a distinct location. Look at your text in Matthew 4.1. As I've said, the temptation of Jesus occurred just after John baptized him in the Jordan River. So Matthew says in Matthew 4.1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. It comes on the heels of Jesus' greatest triumph up to this point in his life. Now Mark says in Mark 1.12, and immediately the Spirit drove him into the, the wilderness. So the, the Father had declared him to be the Son of God, his, his Son, and the Holy Spirit had come upon him, empowering him for his ministry. Then immediately the Spirit led him into the wilderness. Now we saw last week that the wilderness was a hot, barren, and desolate place. According to Mark, it even had wild animals roaming about. Now, I would argue that it's critical to understand the significance of Jesus' surroundings during this test. Uh, significantly, the first, Adam, the, uh, the, the first Adam, that is, failed his test while in paradise and was driven into the wilderness. It, I even thought about it this morning as I was getting prepared. He was among docile animals, was he not? Now, he was in a place of comfort. And he, he led Eve and his unborn children, because of the fall, because of his sin, he led them into the wilderness. He was driven into the wilderness. But the second Adam, 
Jesus, would be tested in the wilderness. He would be tested among wild beasts. And he would lead his people into unimaginable paradise. This leads us to Matthew's second distinction. His time of temptation tied with an old enemy. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Notice it says that Jesus would be tempted by the devil. Uh, Last week we found that he was tempted. This was an old enemy. Some would try to argue that the biblical understanding of Satan progressed over time from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The the critics would say that by the time John wrote, as, as the New Testament was closed, the theology of the enemy had progressed. They had a better understanding of him. So, so they would say our understanding of the devil comes more from the New Testament writing than from Old Testament. But I would argue that John, Matthew, and the other New Testament writings were actually drawing uh, from the Old Testament. They were drawing from Old Testament theology about an old enemy, the, the devil. Now, he's the same enemy. He showed up in the form of the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He tempted Adam and he failed the test. He is the the same enemy whose head would be crushed by the coming Messiah, according to Genesis 3.15. He's the same enemy who came before Yahweh with the sons of God in Job 1.6. Job probably lived around the time of Abraham, and God allowed Satan to take all of his possessions, including his his children, according to uh, Job 1.12. He also allowed Satan to strike his flesh with with terrible boils. And and, and God did this uh, to prove to Satan that the righteous man, Job, would not curse God after losing everything, including his health. Job passed the test. But he didn't pass it in the same way Jesus would. While he never cursed God, Job did complain. Job did question And Job even challenged God's wisdom and and justice. But our Lord would do none of these things. This brings us to the third of Matthew's six distinctions. This time of temptation told of a new Adam. Again, this is review from last time. Look at your text in Matthew 4, 2. And he had fasted, after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Mainly, this verse, I would argue, emphasizes Jesus' humanity. He is the second Adam. He is the the last Adam. Just like us, he became tired when deprived of sleep. In Matthew 4.38, I I just love this, this picture. I said this on Friday night in the small group. I just love this picture. It says that Jesus, during the storm, was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. He was just like you and I. He felt... He felt tired, and, and he also felt grief and, and sorrow. And in Matthew uh, chapter 26, it, it talks about him uh, being grieved and, and distressed. He, he says, my soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. He also felt thirst. In John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been finished, this is on the cross, in order uh, to finish Scripture or fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. And according to our text, he felt hunger. As a matter of fact, according to the writer of Hebrews, it says that he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in all things like us, yet without sin. Yet without sin. He responded rightly in all situations. He never succumbed to the temptation. This brings us to Matthew's fourth distinction. His time, Jesus' time of temptation tested a unique title. 
It's tested a unique title. Look back at your text in Matthew 4, 3. And the tempter, we know that to be Satan or the devil, said to him, if you are the Son of God. Now, right now I want to draw your attention to the devil's challenge. This phrase, if you are the Son of God, ties back to Jesus' baptism. And the Father's declaration in Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. With this proclamation, God the Father declared that Jesus is the Son of God. Here in Matthew 4.3 and in Matthew 4.6, the devil directly challenges that declaration. It's not that he doesn't believe it. I want to make sure you understand that. James even says that even the demons believe and they shudder. It's not that he doesn't believe it. The question is, how will he respond? How will Jesus respond as the Son of God? Uh, This is a, a conditional phrase in the Greek that assumes that Jesus is the divine Son. The Father had, had just, as we said in Matthew 3, had just before declared Him to be His Son. So before, before He gave these direct temptations, Satan set Him up by challenging that title. Satan hoped to persuade Jesus to demonstrate His power as the Son of God in a way that was not intended by the Father. He wanted Jesus to use his power to show that it was authentic, to show that it was authentic. But that was not the Father's plan. It was God's will for Jesus to willingly lay aside his power. It was God's plan, the Father's plan, for Jesus to empty himself. It was the Father's plan for Jesus to humble himself completely. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that was the Father's will. Had Jesus followed, fallen, that is, for the devil's schemes, he would have disobeyed the, the Father's perfect will. He would have been acting independently, if you will, of the Father. In effect, affirming his deity and his rights as the Son of God would have shown that he was not worthy of that title. Because it would have been against the Father's will. Now I want, you to, I want to take just a few moments to better understand the uniqueness of this title, Son of God. The New Testament writers refer to Jesus as the Son of God 47 times. He is called Son, or my son, another 30 times for a total of 77 references to the title. Now, we need to recognize the uniqueness of this title. Jesus called himself God's only begotten son in John 3.16. We've heard this verse many times. uh, But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. The Greek word, that John uses uh, there, that John uses for only begotten, it stresses that Jesus is the unique and only Son of God. In John 1.14, John says that they beheld God's glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. In John 1.18, John, John calls Jesus the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. In John Excuse me, in John 3.18, just after the John 3.16 reference, 
Jesus refers to himself as the only begotten Son of God. In 2 Peter 1, 16-17, Peter refers back to the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 1-13, and he says in, in, that, in, in 2 Peter 1, 17, for when we receive honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And as we have seen, the Father made a similar declaration in Matthew 3, 17, that this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And what we need to understand from this is that this is a very, very specific title that only applies to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is unique to Him, and it points to His deity. He is God's only begotten Son. Therefore, He is the incomparable and unique Son of God. And that title clearly points to His uniqueness as the Son of God. To push it even further, He is the only begotten Son of God. He preexisted as divine. And He is the one who was sent by the Father to give eternal life. And this is precisely the point where Satan attacked Jesus in the temptation. Now we need to take some time also to consider the idea of temptation. We talked about this some in our, uh, in our group this morning with the men. You may have noticed that in this distinction, I, I said that this is a time of, uh, that, that this time of temptation tested a unique title. Well, we know the title was the Son of God. The Greek word, translated to tempt, so it says that Satan tempted him. The Greek word translated to tempt is a morally neutral word. It actually means to test. When the word is used, we must then look at the context to understand its meaning. Whether it's meant testing testing in a good way, or whether it's meant tempting in in a bad way, ultimately that depends upon the intent of the one giving the test. Ultimately, the Greek word means to test. It simply means to test. But can be translated to tempt if the intent is evil. Or it can be translated to test if the intent is good. Again, we have to look at the context to know whether the intent is evil or good. So, in this case, the devil is the one doing the tempting. He was enticing Jesus to do evil. So, it's translated tempt. But here's the interesting part. God can and does use Satan's evil intent for his own good purposes. J. Vernon McGee says that Jesus was not tempted to see if he would fall. He was tempted to show that he could not fall. Do you, you understand what's, what's going on here? Satan is tempting to evil. And God is using that temptation as a test to show, to prove that he could not fall. Beloved, there's never, there was never any chance that Jesus would fail. Never. Not for one moment. That would be an impossibility. So it wasn't a test to see if Jesus would fail. God used Satan and his temptations to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt. <coughs> God used Satan and his temptations to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was in fact worthy 
He was in fact worthy to be called the Son of God. Classic text for this is Genesis 50-20. In that text, Joseph's brothers had evil intent against him. They sold him into slavery in Egypt and, he, and they faked his death to get rid of him. Yet God used their actions for good. Ultimately, God preserved Israel by taking them into Egypt. And, and, and you might know the rest of the story. But in Genesis 50, 20, uh, Joseph said, As for you, you meant evil against me. You had me thrown to the bottom of that well, and then you had me sold into to slavery. You faked my death, and you meant evil. You didn't want me to have, you didn't want me to have my inheritance, right? But God meant it for good in order to do what has happened to this day, or on this day, to keep many people alive. See, God used that for good purposes. And back in Matthew chapter 4, in this case, Satan intended to tempt Jesus, the Son of God, into disobedience for his own evil purposes, for Satan's evil evil purposes. Yet, the Father used it as testing to demonstrate that Jesus Again, it was never, he was never going to fail the test, but to demonstrate to those who were watching, especially the angelic realm, to demonstrate that Jesus was in fact, or is in fact, worthy of that unique title, the Son of God. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you may see the same pattern in your own life. You see, God doesn't tempt us to do evil. God doesn't tempt us to sin. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Yet, he uses evil for our good in his glory. You see, he uses our trials as a test of our faith to produce endurance and sanctification. That's James 1.2-4. God uses Satan's temptations to, to test and strengthen our faith in him. This testing proves our faith to be real. Peter even says that trials show us the genuineness of our faith. We talked about it that this morning in the men's study. You see, it's our genuine faith that allows us to endure the trials. It's the genuine faith that allows us to, 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 to endure the trials. And as we go through the trials, our faith is tested and it's strengthened. Why is it strengthened? Because we see God take us through the trial, to take us through the fiery trial, and we survive that trial. Not only do we survive, but if we are truly in faith, if we truly have faith, we thrive. We thrive. It makes us, it makes us better. That's the, it, it produces endurance. That's what James says. And let endurance have its perfect result that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It makes us more whole. Peter says the same thing. The proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put simply, God always uses the testing, even if it comes in the form of temptations, to produce His good purposes for His glory. And He does this when we respond according to His good plan for us. He can even turn the worst temptation into testing for our good if we surrender to His will found in His Word. 
John MacArthur says it this way, it is God's great desire to turn into victory what Satan intends for failure, to strengthen us at the very point where the adversary wants to find us weak. And if you've lived long enough in Christ, you'll see it. You see it in your own life. I know I see it in my life. I see those times when I've been at my weakest, and I've been tested at my weakest point. And I can see the Lord strengthening me in my weakness. It ultimately comes from the Lord. And He does that so that we can see uh, where the strength actually comes from. You may ask how we can be tempted yet not sin. Well, God's Word is clear on this point. James gives the proper progression in James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it gives, brings forth death. In other words, the temptation in itself is not in and of itself a sin. You can be tempted. There can be something that tempts you. But that is not a sin in and of itself. We sin when we give in to that temptation. When we act upon that temptation. Our brother J.C. Ryle has said, To be tempted is in itself no sin. It is the yielding to the temptation and giving it a place in our hearts which we must fear. End quote. Church, when you face trials on every side, even trials resulting from the evil actions of others, you have a choice. You can respond in sinful despair and let the trial drive you to sinful bitterness and anger. We've all seen that, have we not? You may sinfully question God asking Him what you've done to deserve this. That's what Job did. And that's certainly what the devil wants for you. He wants you to respond in bitterness. He wants you to lash out in anger. He wants you to angrily and bitterly withdraw from fellowship from other believers. He, he may even want, you, he even want you to plot uh, your w- ways to get revenge. In the words of John Owen, Temptations and occasions put nothing into a man, but only draw out what was in him before. But that's not God's will for your circumstances, whatever they may be. He wants you to respond in faith, knowing that God can use even the worst of situations for our good and for His own purposes. That's Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now keep this in your mind as we dive into this next distinctive. Now we're going to spend the next two sermons, the rest of this sermon and the next sermon, looking at these temptations in depth. Look at the first. Well, let's look at his time. Let's look at the next distinctive. His time of temptation, Jesus' time of temptation, took into account three difficult challenges. Look at your text in Matthew 4, 3 again. It says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, as we begin to study each of these challenges, I want you to recognize that Satan uses the same strategy that he used in the garden with Adam and Eve. He subtly twists, subtly twists, subtly twists the Word of God or the Word for his evil purposes. The first test, the question then becomes, will Jesus take care of himself instead of following the Father's plan? Now, clearly at this point, 
We've seen it in the text. Jesus has fasted for 40 days, and the text says that he was hungry. That shouldn't be surprising to you. He's hungry. He's probably physically weak from his hunger and thirst. You see, he needed something to eat. The obvious temptation then was to fulfill his need for food and water through miraculous means. Now, we've alluded to a, a, a much deeper-seated temptation here. Just think of it this way. Jesus has been declared the Son of God. I would argue, in effect, that, that the devil is saying, if you are the Son of God, why in the world are you starving here in the wilderness? Think about that. In the words of D.A. Carson, Satan was not inviting Jesus to doubt his sonship, but to reflect on its meaning. Sonship of the living God, he suggested, surely means that Jesus, certainly means Jesus has the power and the right to satisfy his own needs, end quote. God even provided manna for, the, for Israel in the wilderness, did they not? I mean, we're talking about complaining, stubborn Israel. God provided manna for them. They didn't deserve it. So if you are the righteous son of God, how could he let you starve? That's the point. All you need to do is turn these stones into bread. You got the power? You can do it. Do it. What are you waiting on? You may even, you, the, the Father may even let you die without fulfilling your mission. You need to do something. Take it into your own hands. And John MacArthur says it this way. <clears throat> he was being tempted to doubt the Father's word, the Father's love, and the Father's provision. He had every right, Satan suggested, to use his own divine powers to supply what the Father had not, end quote. So the question is, how will Jesus respond? Well, he responds by trusting the Father's plan and using Scripture to combat the devil's lies. He responds exactly how we should respond. We certainly can learn much from this righteous or his righteous response. Look at your text in Matthew 4, verse 4. But he answered and said, it is written... It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus had come to earth as a man, clothed in frail humanity, we just sang it earlier, to do the Father's will. Ultimately, they shared in eternity, they shared the same will. Incredibly, Jesus declared in, Matthew, in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In John 5, verse 30, Jesus asserted, I can do nothing from myself as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In, in Hebrews 12, or 10, 9, the writer of Hebrews quotes, Behold, I have come to do your will, speaking to the Father. Later, in, as Jesus faced betrayal and his arrest, he prayed to the Father in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, our Lord Jesus lived his life doing the Father's will. He never deviated from it. And here at the outset of his ministry, the, de the devil challenged him at this very point. Would he follow the Father's will and plan? When, thing, when the going got tough, would he deviate? Ultimately, Jesus responded, it is written. 
It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This Old Testament quote comes from Deuteronomy 8.3. comes from Deuteronomy 8.3. Last week we took some time to, we drew some parallels between Israel's wilderness wanderings for 40 years and Jesus' time of temptation for 40 days, both in the wilderness, both the 40 is the common denominator. But here we see a further connection in Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 is Moses' words of encouragement and challenge to Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. In Moses' sermon to Israel, he reminded them that God had allowed them to hunger so that they may receive their food from God himself, manna from above. This taught Israel that they could trust him to provide for them. Jesus' response is a beautiful picture of someone who fully relies on God and his provision. He clearly showed Satan that his priority was not his physical sustenance. His priority was God's word and his intimate relationship with the Father, and nothing else mattered. He knew that the Father would ultimately provide everything he needed physically. He trusted that. He he only needed to focus on feeding on God's Word. Beloved, God calls for us to trust in Him for all our needs. We must never complain or worry about physical requirements. As the Apostle Paul declared to the church at Philippi, and my God will fulfill all your needs according to the riches, His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? I, I love Jesus' words in Matthew 6, 25-34. You might turn there for just a moment, just a few pages over. We'll get there in a few months, maybe. Could be a year or two, I don't know. I hope it won't be that long. Could be a while, because uh, when we get to Matthew 5, it's going to really get thick, but sorry. Sorry to tell you that. Okay, yeah, turn there. Matthew six twenty four. Look at 624. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now as Christians, clearly here, we are not to chase after wealth. Chasing after wealth will lead us to abandon serving God and could even lead to a shipwreck of our faith. In 2 Timothy 4.10 Paul had these chilling words about a man named Demas. He says, Demas, for having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Beloved, loving wealth, loving this world, could lead you to abandon your Lord. For the Christian, we're called to an even higher standard. Not only are we not to pursue wealth, we're not even to worry about our lives. That's Matthew 6.25, look at it. Jesus says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body or as, as to what you will put on. It is, is, it not life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that do not sow nor, reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Christian, you are made in the image of, the, image of God. He he will richly supply all of your needs. Besides that, look at at Jesus' question in Matthew 6, 27. And who who of you, by being worried, can add even a single cubit to his lifespan? You can't add a moment. You can't add a millisecond to your life by worrying. Preaching to myself here. 
as my family knows. Truly, worry does nothing but show that we don't trust our Lord. It only adds stress and ultimately will shorten your life. Look at verse 28. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil, and nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? You see, God gives us everything that we need. I was thinking about this. Can you imagine going to heaven and continuing to worry about food and clothing? Think about that. If you can't trust him here, then why do you think you'll trust him there? Look at verse 31. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, and what, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. See, the world seeks after those things. The world wants the best food and the best drink and the best clothing. How many, if you, I don't, I'm not on Instagram, but anymore, I used to be. It's just a big distraction, but how many Instagram influencers are trying to get us our attention by showing us the best places to eat, the best places to drink, the finest clothing? Ask yourself, how many would stay with them if they decided to trust God for their provisions? Right? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't look for that, right? You would we're not, we, don't see, we don't see those things as being the, what we would be attracted to. But here's the point, and this is what ties back to Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 33. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Beloved, as Christians, we are called to obey God and trust in His kind provision. We are never to provide for ourselves by doing things that dishonor Him. That's the point. That's what, that's what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do, was to do things to provide for himself while dishonoring the Father. We're never to compromise His Word in any way. I see Christians making poor choices because they don't trust that God will care for them. In the words of John MacArthur, Underlying our readiness to justify much of what we do is the common but self-centered and carnal notion that as God's children we deserve the earthly best and that it is inappropriate or even unspiritual to be satisfied with anything less. Grabbing or demanding what we think we deserve may be an act of rebellion against a sovereign God. End quote. This ties back to our text in Matthew 4.4. You see, we are to live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Let me say it a different way. There's a far more critical source of our sustenance. This spiritual food from God supplies our spiritual needs and benefits us in eternal, in eternal ways. You see, this type of food will not fade away. When we eat physical food, when we, we become hungry again, do we not? Some of us become hungry very soon. But when we eat spiritual food from God, 
we will never hunger or thirst again. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe it? No, really, do you believe it? I love Jesus' words in John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. That doesn't mean you won't become hungry physically. It means that He is going to satisfy every need that you have. Every eternal need. Every need that you don't even understand. Told, Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4.13, he says, I will give him, I will give him water that, <clears throat> sorry, everyone who drinks of this water that I will give will never thirst again, ever, ever. But the water I give will become a, a well of water springing up to eternal life. Friends, God provides all our needs. He provides everything that we need. This doesn't mean that you have everything, you'll have everything your flesh desires. You see the difference? But you'll, give every, you'll be given everything you truly need. And Jesus understood this. Jesus, at his weakest point, hungering in the wilderness, fully understood that the Father would give him everything he needed. And he lived his life fully trusting and depending on the Father. And when, he said, when Satan came to him and said, turn these uh, stones into bread, he said, it is written. It is written. What do you say? What do you say? If it really gets bad, what are you going to say? As, as you consider these things, I want you to think about the cost of discipleship. Are you willing to give up this world and all it offers to follow Christ? In Matthew 8, a scribe came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Listen to Jesus' response to this man. He says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, Jesus wanted this, this man to understand and count the cost of following him. In Matthew 16, 24, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Beloved, we don't follow Christ, we don't follow Jesus to gain anything in this world. Truly, we're called to deny ourselves and even be willing to die for him. In Jesus' own words in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life, his life for my sake will find it. You see, eternal life comes from denying oneself and putting your faith, putting your trust, putting everything in Christ. He is your all in all. Jesus promises whoever loses his life for him will find it. They will find eternal life. In Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's interesting, that, that phrase, what will he give in exchange for his soul? I've thought about that so much. What does that even mean, Lord? Well, let me tell you. You can gain the whole world. You can gain and enjoy the finest food and drink. You can wear the finest clothes and, and the finest shoes. You can drive the nicest and, and the greatest, fastest cars. You can live in the grandest of homes and you can work in the greatest of jobs. You can clamor for all those things. But what if you gain them all and forfeit your soul? What are you willing to give up in exchange for your soul? Going back to that scribe in Matthew 8. Do you think he was ready to give up everything to follow Christ? You see, Jesus gives us the pattern. Jesus' disciple doesn't live to please and serve himself. He doesn't just live on what he can gain out of life. Jesus' disciple trusts that God will provide him uh, with, with all that he needs. He will provide him with the bread that he needs. He, he will clothe us as well. More than that, Jesus' disciple lives on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus' disciple understands that God's Word provides for us eternally. You're here today and don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You haven't taken the step of repenting and turning from your sins. I pray right now as we sit here today, don't let another moment go by. I pray that you will repent and turn to Him. I pray that you will give your life uh, to the only one who can save your eternal soul. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins if you turn to Him. He's defeated sin and death. He is even now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And He will return in glory. He will return in judgment. Turn to Him now. Bow your knee to the King. Bow your, bow your knee now. Don't let another moment pass. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning or this, now at this point and I do pray for Your church Pray for those here who believe, who have trusted in You. Lord, I pray that their true faith would be revealed as they trust in You no matter what the cost. That they've counted the cost and they follow You. And that they can honestly say, that they can honestly say that they live by every word that proceeds out of your mouth. We trust fully in you for all things. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you here today, who are still clamoring after the world, and all the world contains, and all the world promises to give. Oh, it's a subtle lie. It looks good. It looks real good. Lord, but it's a lie. It's rotten. We know 
that eternal life, things that, that truly matter, only come from your hand. Father, I pray that if there be any here that don't know you, that you would draw them to yourself. That they would come to see the bankrupt nature of this world. And that true riches come from you. And you alone. In Christ's name, amen.